0: Coffee is the blackest beverage on the planet, number one. It comes from, you know, like literally the blackest and brownest places on this world. I mean, why have we like given it away to a bunch of hipsters?
2: You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikaela Matthews-O'Kome. So let's get started today's episode is brought to you by Gusto. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll benefits and HR to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by Mag. And as a Side Hustle Pro listener, you will get three months free when you run your first payroll. So sign up and give it a try at Gusto.com SHP. That's Gusto.com SHP. This episode of Side Hustle Pro is brought to you by Podcast Moguls. Have you been looking to start your podcast or have you started your podcast, but you're just not seeing the downloads you expected? Well, I encourage you to head over to podcastmoguls.com for my next masterclass on your first 1000 downloads. I'll break down how to launch your podcast, grow an audience and increase your downloads without being on a network or having any previous experience. So you will learn how Side Hustle Pro launched in the top 50 on Apple Podcasts, how to market your podcast, because remember, you can have awesome content, but if nobody knows about it, your show won't grow. So we break down the exact steps to regularly add 1,000 plus new engaged followers on Instagram and accelerate those podcast downloads. And finally, I break down the different ways you can monetize your podcast so you do not want to miss this head over to podcastmoguls.com so you can be registered for the next masterclass i'll see you there hey hey guys welcome welcome back to the show today in the guest chair we have majora carter majora is a real estate developer urban revitalization strategy consultant macarthur fellow and peabody award-winning broadcaster She is also the co owner of the Boogie Down Grind Cafe in the South Bronx. Now, as a fellow Bronxite and graduate of the Bronx High School of Science, I, of course, was intrigued by Majora's journey. Because let's face it, for a long time, and even now, people have had a limited view of the Bronx. And in addition to that, you don't often see things like leisurely lifestyle places like coffee shops, lounges, bookstores, and cool places to just hang out in many Bronx neighborhoods, other than, let's say, Riverdale, which is one of the more wealthy areas of the Bronx. And often, when you finally do see these places popping up, they are not founded by us. They are not founded by Black women. Well, Majora is changing all of that. She has made it her life's mission to find sustainable solutions for America's most low status communities, and she has done that with much of her work. She is even quoted in the permanent collection of the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in DC with her motto Nobody should have to move out of their neighborhood to live in a better one. In today's episode, we hear how Majora got into urban revitalization, the impact she's had why she decided to open the Boogie Down Grand Cafe and how she's worked through challenges such as being protested and accused of being a gentrifier and so much more. So let's get right into it. Majora, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. As I shared, I reached out the minute I heard. And I'm actually so surprised we have not crossed paths before as fellow Black women, Bronxites, Bronx (laughs) High School of Science graduates. What? But I'm excited. We know each other now.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's a blessing now. So I'm
2: just happy about that. Same. So how would you, in your own words, describe yourself now at the phase and point you are in your career?
0: Uh, I am a real estate developer and urban revitalization strategist.
2: So tell me, what was it like for you growing up in the Boogie Down? Well,
0: it was, um, you know, interestingly enough, it was both not as hard and but also even more challenging than folks that that aren't aware of it would think. Because it's really because I grew up in the South Bronx, which at the time um, and still is considered, you know, this urban, uh, it's a ghetto, basically. And, you know, and it was, but back then when I was growing up, I mean, it really was the focus of just all that was wrong with urban areas around the, co- the country, especially ones that had black and brown people in them. And it was, you know, there was financial disinvestment, landlords were torching their buildings. I mean, we lost 60% of our population um, at the time. Um, you know, you could walk for blocks and it would be just like burnt out shells of buildings. And, you know, so it was like it made for good, you know, um, photographic fodder, you know, for the media to see how show how bad things were, you know, in in inner cities. But, you know, it was interesting because even though it was pretty bad in a lot of ways, I mean, definitely I I lost a brother to gang violence. Um, You know, we definitely lost people to drugs um, and addiction and just, you know, people moving away because it wasn't many places for people to build a life. Um, but there was also very much a sense of community, which was really weird. Like I never once feared for my own life. I never once didn't know that there were people who really looked out for me and loved me and cared for me. Um, and because of those, those two very, you know, almost polar opposite things, <laughs> you could imagine as, a, as an adolescent, it was kind of crazy making. Because there was a pull, but also, you know, to to be connected, but also, you know, a a push to leave.
2: Yeah. At that time, did you think this was a place you would stay? Did you have any interest in changing that when you were a little girl?
0: No, I had absolutely no
2: interest in changing it. I had an interest in leaving
0: it Um, because like most kids, um, you know, bright, talented ones in communities like um, like the South Bronx, you know, we were taught you know, that we were going to grow up and be somebody. And what that meant was that you were going to be somebody, but not in that community, you know, you're going to grow up and get out. And I thought that was, you know, and I took that to heart. I really did. And, um, you know, so probably from the time I was seven, I think, which is when I literally first saw, you know, the first, um, buildings in my, or at least the first time I saw buildings in my neighborhood burned down, plenty of them did before, but that's when I physically saw them. Um, you know, my brother was killed at the end of the summer. And that's when I literally started planning for my escape. And part of my escape included going
2: to a great high school, which turned out to be Bronx High School of Science. <laughs> so we stayed in the Bronx, right. But it, for those who don't know, that is one of the top New York City specialized high schools. So it's a public high school, but it is a kind of like a magnet school. You have to take a test to get in. You've probably seen headlines now about how contested it is because there aren't as many of us at these schools. What was it like right. when you went?
0: Oh, um, apparently a lot more Black folks. Exactly. Than black folks now. Um, you know, it was hard. I mean, it was it was really clear again, this was right in, this was in the early eighties. And you know, the, my neighborhood was all over the news and it was not uncommon for either students or um, of all colors, because there was like, you know there were definitely, um, you know, black and brown students that were doing quite well economically. I was not one of them,
2: obviously. That was my first time being exposed to that as well. I was like, wait, what? What is the Hamptons? And why do you have another house? I
0: was like... You know, and just had no idea, and uh, you know that there that black people came in other ways than poor. Like, I was mm-hmm. like, "This has got to be kidding." It's like we had the Jeffersons on television, but that wasn't really real either. Um, but it was so funny to me, or it was actually kind of traumatic because there was still this perception that the South Bronx, would, if you were from there, you were either a pimp, a pusher, or a prostitute. So around it was around that time when I started kind of like you know, crawling into myself and not really sharing much about where I was from. I mean, it was really difficult um, in, in that regard. I mean, I heard it from teachers, um, definitely some students, you know, some students were absolutely my friends and it was just like they didn't care one way or another. But I absolutely knew that there was something wrong with where I was from. No if or buts about it.
2: And then you went on to study film and cinema as well as creative writing in college and grad school. So what led you to that path? And when did you become interested in urban revitalization?
0: Um, It's interesting because even back, well, I wanted, I thought I wanted to be an actress. And then I realized, oh God, I don't really like being in front of people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I still trying to figure out like, what made me want to do that? And I've just been racking my brains around it because it just, like, it was a phase that I went through, but it was a long phase. But up and literally up until uh, like sophomore year in college when I was just like, I don't wanna do this. Like this is this is insane. Um, but but I loved loved the creative process of telling stories. Like that's really what I wanted to do. And I realized, oh, I could write and I could also I could do films because it's also the permanency of of telling a story like that. And you know, committing it, you know, to um, you know, committing it to film was a way to continue to tell that story. And so that's what got me really interested in, in film. But what was also interesting for me was that I was the kind of stories that I wanted to tell were about like a woman's desire to be a woman on her own terms. You know, that's what my thesis, my senior thesis, was about. Or, um, or, or I wanted to talk about stories about like the, the misconceptions that people had of poor people. But I wanted to do it narratively, and and it was just a really kind of interesting thing that even though I hadn't you know, given up on being creative. Uh, my, there was something going on, you know, in, in my head. And you know, I really, you know, thank God for like, give us like little clues to <laughs> to get us to where we need to go in terms of what we see as our purpose in our life. Like those were the stories I wanted to tell. And then basically over the course of another decade or so, um, you know, I was put in a position where I, you know, either had to, I had to move back in with my parents into this community that i had fought so hard to leave.
2: Oh my God, Majora, like well, you are me. I am you. I also had to do the move back home to the Bronx. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, what am I doing here? It's like, yes. wait, what?
0: And you know, in like my old bedroom and it was yes. fine. And you know, I'm the youngest of 10. So it was just me and my parents and, um, you know, and I'm sure my actually I know for a fact my mother was like happy that all of us were gone. But my <laughs> father was just like, look, the kid needs a place to stay. It's just where where else is she going to go? Right.
2: Like, right.
0: <laughs> so, And my mother wasn't that bad, but she had turned my room into a sewing room. It's you know, that was kind of funny, um, but. It, but I, but what was great was that I got to see my neighborhood in a completely different light. Um, I got connected with some of the artists in the community because I didn't know there were any, um, you know, and we made beautiful, beautiful work together. And that's when I realized that, uh, that our city and state were also planning at the same time where I'm like starting to like, sow my, your know, creative oats in my own hometown that um, the city was planning on building a huge waste facility on our waterfront. Wow. And, that's, and I was just like, wait, you can't do that to some place that I just started to love. Like, that's just, no. And, uh, and I got involved in the activism around that. Um, and But what really, really moved me was trying my hardest to come up with ways that would make people care. And that, I think, was the creative in me because I was just like, you know, you can't always be fighting against something. It's tiring, it's boring. And, you know, and after a while, people will be like, they tune it out.
2: They tune people it out. Yeah. do. And they look for something that
0: inspires them. You know, they, it's just people are not cut out to be where I think we really were designed to be like lovers of, of beautiful things and love. I really do believe that. And um, so when it's just like, oh, everything's terrible. Oh, we have to fight. Oh, we have to protest. And I'm just like, can we just live a life that's nice? What do we need in our community that's nice <laughs> that we don't have? And so that's when I started getting at par- active on um, park re- re- park development, because we hadn't had a park in our community in more than or excuse me, a waterfront park in our community in more than 60 years.
2: And you're referring to the, the South Bronx here, the Hunts Point community? Yeah. Specifically. Or- OK. It's all the South Bronx, like yeah. none of it. And um, so it was just like,
0: whoa. And we and here we were in, in my part of the South Bronx. We were literally surrounded on three sides by water, and had no access to it. And it was just like, why? This is just crazy pants. So I actually got in and start, actually spearheaded the development of the first waterfront park we've had in in the community in more than sixty years. Amazing. Oh, uh, and really worked um, you know collectively with folks on a bunch of different. Uh, projects that, you know, like we have really tried to, uh, actually demap map a former, uh, uh, highway because it didn't, wasn't really ever finished. And it turns out that it blocked access to the waterfront and separated communities from itself. And, um, and basically some of that is actually happening right now. It took, you know, a long time, but some of it's looked, it, it, it hasn't worked out the way it was supposed to, unfortunately, but, um, you know, it was a, it was a valiant attempt. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> I worked on, uh, uh, starting one of the country's first and, and still sadly most successful green collar job training and placement systems, because we weren't just about training people. We were about actually getting them jobs. And so that project, uh, it's called best Bronx environmental stewardship training program actually, um, uh, is still going on. It was acquired by another really great organization. That's and awesome. uh, so I'm really happy about that. Now,
2: one thing I'm confused about when you initially came out of, you know, college and you were pursuing this more creative path, where were you working at that point? And then when you transitioned to more urban revitalization work, real estate development, did you do that under your own consulting arm or were you working for another organization?
0: I mean, at, to to start, like the work that I did under you know, more of along the sustainability and environmental front, that was with the, um, a local community organization. And then I went on to found my own called Sustainable South Bronx, um, which I ran from 20, 2001 to 2008. And it really was an environmental uh, justice solutions and project organization our goal was to create solutions and actually play them out in in the real world and not just do advocacy so we were excited about that um but then in in oh, 08 that's when i realized it's it's time to go um, Actually, I realized it was time to go at least a few times before that. <laughs> I have something that we call, that I deemed reverse founder syndrome, because you find that a lot of founders in the nonprofit industrial complex sort of stay where they are for, for gajillions of years, even though they really should move on. And And I never had that, ever. I was like, after two years, I was like, all right, what can I do? Wow, um,
2: two years. Yeah. Did you have experience in working in nonprofit? Like, how did you have the courage to start a nonprofit and know how to do it?
0: Well, I I worked for another one in a you know a few years before that, and uh, you know went straight from there. And 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 through that, I learned exactly what I didn't want to do in a okay. <laughs> to be And um, you know, like I never wanted to be in a place where you know I felt that I had to be the smartest kid in the room or that. You know, I only wanted, you know, to work with people that thought exactly like me um, or that, you know, that we were in this place where our job was to kind of make poverty uh, sort of OK. Like, I really felt that our job was to provide solutions that alleviated poverty, that really changed our community for the better. Like, I was, I'm i not of the of the mind that poverty is a cultural attribute and that, you know, our job is to just sort of make people okay or feel a little bit better about living in, in not great circumstances. Yeah. Which I feel that a lot of the profit industrial complex actually does.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's just like a given. Oh that is oh that is a bad borough or that is, you know, a bad neighborhood. And that's just supposed to be fact. Yep. So now let's talk about the Boogie Down Grind Cafe. I'd love to know when the idea came to you and why. What was your mission here?
0: Well, uh it was so the Boogie Down Bryant Cafe, it is the the only locally owned specialty uh, coffee shop that's hip hop themed <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the South Bronx. And, uh, and it really came about, you know, as part of our real estate and uh, revitalization consulting practice, because we we had some ideas about what was up with the way low status communities in America were developed. Um, and so by low status, I mean the neighborhoods where there's more environmental issues, where there's more unemployment, or, you know, definitely more higher rates of people being involved in the in the justice system, lower educational attainment, higher rates of economic, excuse me, uh, higher rates of ed- of uh, of uh, health, lower health outcomes. You know, yeah. all the things that one would find, you know, in, in a sort of typical inner city, but you also find them on the, on native American reservations on, um, you know, in poor white, you know, former post-industrial towns, you know, places like that. And, uh, but it's just a place where inequality is assumed and that things won't get better. Like that's just the heart of it all. And, but when we looked around and I think especially in urban areas, and we noticed that there were two kinds of real estate development that generally only happened there, it was either places were gentrified really simply you know, like and a uh, sort of typical path, you know, uh, developers would eye it, you know, buy up property and then poor people would be unable to live there because they're displaced. Or the other kind is something we call poverty level economic maintenance, which is you'll see instead of great places to buy food um, and varied options of foods, uh, you'll find a lot more fast food stores and just places that aren't particularly healthy. Um, you won't find banks or credit unions to actually help you build your financial profile, but you'll find plenty of check cash and stores and pawn shops and payday loan centers and things like that. Um, you will definitely find you know, enormous amounts of um, uh, both medical clinics, but also very highly subsidized affordable housing. For the for the poorest of the poor people, and you know, so so basically, who wins in that regard are the developers who know how to make that money for the subsidies, and there are huge subsidies. But the conditions never really change for the people that live in those communities. They just don't. That's very eye
2: opening the way that you've broken that down. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So and it's like and it's like it's understood that that's just the way that it works, and no one really questions it. So I was like, why are we? Why is nobody questioning that? Like that's just that's kind of sick. You know, and and so when we looked around, we started asking people, you know, well, what do you think this neighborhood needs? And particularly young people, what do you think this neighborhood needs? And they'd almost automatically say things like, oh, they need more homeless shelters and really affordable housing for very poor people. We need more places, um, uh, more community based programs at community centers, um, that kind of stuff. And so then, and and also what's really clear, I think you should know about kids in the Bronx, in particular the South Bronx, is that we've had more kids these past few years graduating high school and going on to college than we've had in almost 30 years. Wow. Okay. Now, they don't stay in college, and that's a whole other, that's a dirty little secret that no one really wants to talk about, but... that. We can talk about that later. But the bottom line is they are going. But when we ask these same kids like, oh, so when you go away to college and you do you do great, you get a great job. Are you planning on coming back to this neighborhood? And they'd be like, "Uh, hell no. Why would I do that? This place is like, no, is it like for poor people? I'm not going to be poor. I don't want this is like it's no, I don't want anything to do with it. And we were just like, huh, isn't it interesting that we are kind of creating this perception that of what community needs are? But if you do anything better for yourself, you don't want to be there. Right. And we've asked, and we also did hundreds of surveys asking people what were the type of places that they wanted to be in, in their, in their ideal community and things like coffee shops and great parks, which we have fortunately, um, you know, uh, bookstores and bike shops and Bars and restaurants, those were the type of lifestyle infrastructure that they indicated was that were great neighborhoods. And so and then we realized that those were the type of things that made people want to stay in their neighborhoods. And if we took the same kind of talent retention strategies that companies take to retain their best talent, they, it would be it would be the sort of the equivalent of what we're trying to do by actually building out the kind of neighborhood that people want to stay in we need to retain the talent because if we don't those people will leave.
2: I've heard you talk about this talent retention. I think it's it's so smart the way you think about talent retention and apply it to neighborhood redevelopment. So can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so talent retention, you know, again, it really is we, we sort of borrowed it from from the from the corporate sector. Um because we're not trying to say that everybody isn't a valuable member of, of our communities. But we do know that when the, the, the ones that, that resources were, were, were that we were, was it people were identified as the talented ones in those communities, they are the ones that become the income generators. They are the ones that become the type of people that other folks look up to you know that that day to day example of success you know they are the ones that will invest you know in their own in their own communities and when we remove the opportunity for people to do that in their own hometowns then we weaken the fabric of that very town and so on and our all of our neighborhoods and so why are we not saying you know what if 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 America and and it is a, you know, a country filled with little neighborhoods. Why can't all of our neighborhoods be strong? It's not as if all of our neighborhoods don't have at least a few people with talent coming from them. You know, I'm not the only person from my this 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 part of Hunts Point, this part of South Bronx that had really talented, amazing people in it. I, but I am one of the few who decided to stay because they all were able to go someplace else that met their lifestyle a little bit better. Didn't mean they don't have love for the place. They do. They come back and you know, some of them are like Cardi B. They come back to their favorite nail salon. Get- <laughs> right. It's really very cute. It's really beautiful. But they're, But ultimately, you know, they're at a point in their lives where they're just like, you know what? I need a little bit more. So creating this coffee shop to get, make a long story short too late um, was really that way so it, to, to show people that in a, in a neighborhood that was filled where the only real public spaces that you could go um, in our communities was the inside of a of a of a medical clinics waiting room or a community center that we all know cool kids do not go to community centers. i mm-hmm. um, sorry. And, um,
2: <laughs> no, you know, that's just not right. Where- and I mean, growing up, it was just, especially once you start interning, the, the companies are in Manhattan. So it yeah. just becomes nature, you know, second nature that, oh, if I'm going to a coffee shop, if I'm going anywhere, I'm leaving the Bronx. How crazy is that? Like, I'm going to a coffee shop in another borough.
0: Well, in our community, there weren't things like that. Yeah. I
2: mean, that's the whole point. It's
0: just like we found out people were spending their money to literally travel down to go someplace yeah. like that.
2: Even if it's Harlem, it like,
0: yep. And, you know, and since, you know, it's like, you also look, you can go to a Dunkin' Donuts. We've got three Dunkin' Donuts. That's our competition, you know, within walking distance of us. But it's not the same. Yeah. I know it's not the same. You know, it's not the same, but it's what people know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the sort of like the culture in some of our places is that that's what happens here. So that's what I'm going to do because this, this thing that looks really bougie over here, I don't know if that's for me. And then we have to like remind people, it's like, first of all, I'm sorry, coffee is the blackest beverage on the planet, number one. It comes from, you know, like literally the blackest and brownest pe- places on this on this world. Yeah. I mean, why have we like given it away to a bunch of hipsters? Okay. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah. So like, what, what did it take to bring, how did you go from being, you know, the creator of this nonprofit urban revitalization strategist to the owner of a coffee shop?
0: Well, I mean, you know, look, it's, it's it's just part of the it's just part of it. You know, it's part of the idea that we can and should be creating the type of infrastructure that encourages the talent in our community to want to stay. you know, so I had to put myself out there. So liter- literally, like I knew that if I didn't do it, this place, I mean, Starbucks is looking at this area now because I actually came out and did it first. Wow.
2: Hey guys, it's Michaela here with a quick word from our sponsor. If you have a business or you know someone who does, you probably know by now that small business owners, we wear a lot of hats. And some of those hats are mad fun, I'm not going to lie. But some of them like filing taxes and running payroll, they're not so great. That's where gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for us small businesses. It's fast with simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about all that. Plus, they make it easy to add on things like health benefits and even 401ks for your team. So those old school clunky payroll providers that you probably thought you had to look at, they just weren't built for the way we work as modern small businesses, but Gusto is. So let them wear all of those hats for you. You have better things to do. Side Hustle Pro listeners, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. So test it out. See for yourself at Gusto.com slash SHP. That's Gusto.com slash SHP. So what did it involve? Now, did you have to connect with coffee grinders? How did you find the location and, and pay for that land?
0: I borrowed, no, no. so, so I have, yeah, I've got good connections within the neighborhood. Um, so there was a, actually a, um, a company here that actually built, built and manages a lot of real estate. So they've been holding on to a couple of storefronts. And so they gave me a very good deal on them. And, uh, and I just held on to them because we didn't know anything about starting a coffee shop. We knew we needed to have one, right. um, you know, to build that active third space where community could actually connect. But we didn't know anything about it. And then, then actually through another contact, we were connected with Birch Coffee, who okay. uh, is they've got like 10 different coffee shops downtown and they have their own roast house in Queens. And so they taught us everything we needed to know about coffee. And what we really wanted was more about how do we create new, we, we were more com- interested in creating an opportunities for creating community and they knew the coffee. So together we were a great team, but then we realized that what we needed to do was actually move off on our own. So we, we, um, you know, so we dissolved that partnership, but the money to start it up came from me, like literally no bank was going to loan to me. Um, you know, I had a pretty decent consulting, um, Practice at the time, so you know we just saved up our money and plunked it all, you know, into uh, renovating this and creating the actual space. And um, and we did get an investor from the local community, which was really helpful. Um, and that was it.
2: Why did you say no bank would lend to you? Because
0: they're because they're notorious for not. We wouldn't be. We would not have been considered a credit tenant. You know, Dunkin' Donuts, they would have loaned to in a heartbeat. Okay. Or, Um, But for like, you know, some black chick from the South Bronx, say who's first time coffee shop owner, it's like every single thing on that list, especially being, I think a black woman was something that they were that they were just like, oh, we could bank on her. No, this just wasn't going to work that way.
2: And speaking of that, having grown up in the Bronx myself, I know how daunting it can be to. Enact meaningful, meaningful, and lasting change, right we've all seen things come and go, so how did you push past the naysayers and those who say it can't be done? continue to say that and even push past your own doubts?
0: yeah, I mean look i I, I look I am a child of God, I was fearfully and wonderfully made, like I understand my purpose is to love my neighbor, and this is the way that I do it so and I also know that you know, because I experience it, that there will be folks who do not understand what I'm doing. And I have to think about it that way because those, because I do, like we've, we've been protested. You're um, we bringing gentrification to the community. I mean, some of it is, you know, them, some folks, you know, have accused me of actually inviting in gentrifications to force people to sell their homes to developers. I mean, it's just, some of it's just psychotic, but mm-hmm. I realize it's all based in fear about, um, you know, not under not feeling as though we've got a place in the world. But but quite frankly, that's a smaller mi- minority of people than those who see the value of what we're doing. Right. And who want who wanna be seen in our coffee shop. Yeah. And recognize that, wait, this is great and that our community actually needs vibrant, beautiful spaces that make them feel like you know, they don't have to move out of their neighborhood to live exactly. in. Exactly.
2: And how do you balance that? Because, again, you know, I want my community to have all the things I want to. Like, I love your motto that we shouldn't have to leave our neighborhoods to have the community that we want. However, right. as soon as you, you start, right, then you're attracting the Whole Foods, you're attracting the Starbucks. And that not only signals that to the community, but it also does realistically raise the prices of rent and everything else. Right. So what is what is the solution?
0: Well, a lot of us, well, you know, look, you know, that phrase, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is is today. Yeah. Um, The bottom line is we, you know, as a community, you know, and I say this for low status communities all over the place, we, gentrification doesn't just start happening when you see the whole foods. Okay. It had been happening a long time before that. When we tell young people in our communities, there's no value in Mm -hmm. our community. And then when their parents sell their properties early and cheap because they don't see the value, which means that that the legacy of owning that property belongs to somebody other than them. Mm. Okay, those we need to recognize that is what we've been doing for decades. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been um, lots and I mean lots of systemic issues with keeping, you know, people of color in particular in their place, you know, access to capital. I, it is, I can speak from experience. It is absolutely harder than, you know, if you like have any kind of melanin on you, no offense or buts about it. And if you add gender, then it's a whole other story. Um, stuff is real, but at this, there are things that we can do that I've noticed sometimes we don't do like case in point here in the South Bronx, we, um, we've lost so much of our home ownership units, like we're down in Hunts Point alone, we are down to less than 7% owner occupied home ownership in this community. Less than 7%. My own family, the house that I grew up in after my parents died, I could not convince my siblings, and I'm the youngest of 10, okay, could not convince my siblings to keep our family's home in the family. They were like, <laughs> You, Jory, you can do that community stuff if you want, but we're selling this cause it's not really worth anything. Wow. And of course now the property is worth almost three times as much. It belongs to a predatory speculator. Okay. Who is just waiting to flip it. And I, this is what I have to see. So I'm so part of what our work is, is just trying to help people keep their property like, hold on to it, recognize that it, what your daddy or your mommy bought back in the 1950s is actually a valuable piece of property right now. And you don't have to sell it, even if you go into arrears, there's plenty of equity in there. But if people aren't willing to, like, even take that leap, because we, that we actually believe that, been, that we really can't, like, play in that sandbox, that we can't be developers ourselves, like the biggest protest, I mean, I've only been protested once, but the protest that I had that where I was being protested was literally it was so ironic because there was a, a bunch of people outside telling me my coffee shop was a, was the gentrifier and all this stupid stuff. And inside we were actually hosting a meeting uh, that was getting resources to the communities, um, mostly low income homeowners and small business owners so they can get both low and zero percent interest loans.
2: Look at that. Look at that. So ironic. So amidst all of that, how did you attract customers and market the cafe and help people to understand that they should yeah. be coming here?
0: We were, so it took the protesters two years to to, <laughs> to protest us, which I was like, wow, that's a great planning, um, you know, organizing skill. But anyway, what was really funny is that I worried about that too. It's like, here we are, you know, hosting this meeting and, uh, you know, about getting access to capital to black and brown people in my own Diego community. And I got a bunch of folks out there, you know, and I don't think it was also really sad that it was mostly women um, mm-hmm. uh, out there protesting another woman of color. Um, yes. but that's a whole other story.
2: That's that, the mind boggling part to me. I'm like, did they not know you? Did they not uh, you know yeah. take a second to have a conversation with you? No, they did not talk to me. Well, what I would like to talk about a little bit more is so this piece of wanting to better your community while also wanting people to still be able to afford it is like a it's almost like a mental block for some because we've been taught that it just has to be this way. Otherwise, it's gentrification and we're going to push everyone out. So if someone is listening today and they want to start their own cafe. They want to start putting their own things into these communities. What are some steps that they can take, you know, as far as capital, as far as identifying real estate, uh, resources?
0: I mean, it's different everywhere. It's never going to be easy. I promise. Hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, but you know, you need to know, you know, the value that you bring. Like, you know, first of all, we know that our, our prices are comparable to Dunkin' Donuts, but our, our, um, what do you call it? But our quality is way better. Mm-hmm. You know, we know where we get our coffee from. We know that the both the farmers, you know, all the way up to the food train are treated well. Um, so that and, and they get a fair price for their product. Um, you know, even after we were protested, you know, I thought that it might be a bad thing for us, too, because, you know, still don't still does way better than we ever will. But we've got a very loyal group of people. And even after the protest, actually, our revenues went up. Because I think regular people in the community like understood that this we were that we actually were an asset to our own community. Mm. And that. so you know you just gotta know you know it's just like with anything else everything else you know know your market um, you know and also sort of build in enough if you have to build in enough time and this is where it is difficult I think in particular for people of color. Um, you know, and, and who don't have, you know, access to the kind of capital that would make it easier for them. Like, you know, we are, you know, we're not in the, in the black yet with this coffee shop yet, but fortunately we were able to subsidize, you know, some of the operations. We through various, you know, types of means, you know, we opened up, um, we had a, uh, what do you call it? A satellite coffee shop, you know, outside of our neighborhood on the High Line, which actually brought in, you know, a lot, a nice bit of revenue so that we could essentially make sure that our other one stayed open until we were at the point where we were making some money. Right. You know, things like that. And, you know, everybody doesn't you know, have those type of options. And, you know, thank God we did. Um, and so but it, but it is really, really difficult.
2: We all carry around different stressors, and when we keep them bottled up, it affects us negatively. I have found that therapy has been a safe space to get things off my chest. I had my daughter last August, and by January, I hit up my therapist like, let's go ahead and set up this monthly session. Therapy has been so helpful for me in setting boundaries, and it just empowers me to be the best version of myself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, this is your sign to go ahead and do it and give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HustlePro today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash HustlePro. What has been challenging about getting into the black as far as the operations or is is there enough foot traffic coming into the cafe?
0: oh we're not there yet i yeah. mean we'll be i mean we're definitely projected to be there by the end of this year and it's specifically because we're getting a wine and beer license because that ah. you know the markup is it's extraordinary and there will be we are the we will be the only place um, you know that's what a lot of folks are working on and and funny thing is for your for coffee shop you'll notice that Their destination, they're not, they're generally not destinations. They're places where people go by every day. So most people, if you're leaving the neighborhood in the morning, you're not going to stop and get a coffee on your way out because, you know, nature will call and you've got your commute downtown, Um, you know, it it makes it a little difficult. So we absolutely miss that, um, you know, that sector section of the market because they just can't. Physically do it. Um, we move to a bigger space, which means people can actually spend more time um, because we now have a public bathroom. Um, you know, and, and we, um, you know, are adding to our menu so that we can actually, you know, capitalize on the fact that there is no other nice place to get, um, you know, a glass of wine or a, or a beer in the neighborhood that's not a strip club.
2: So that's interesting. So this is a coffee shop, but. Because of timing and because of the fact that most people are commuting downtown to work, you know, that in and of itself can't sustain or bring in enough revenue. So now this is going to be an after work destination as well with wine and liquor,
0: wine and beer, yes, wine and beer.
2: Sorry, sorry. Oh, wow. OK. And then when you say move to a bigger spot, how long were you in business before you did that? And um, how were you able to finance that move?
0: It, well, fortunately, we had all of the equipment okay. <laughs> so, and, uh, and our rent was not much, much bigger. You know, we did all of, of the build out ourselves, you know, with we had, a, we had an amazing plumber um, that we met in the neighborhood who was, was just fantastic. And, uh, Isn't
2: and so-, there so much talent in the Bronx.
0: Exactly. But we never would have met him unless we'd opened up a coffee shop. Right. Because he's a big, you know, he's he comes by every day. And then it was just like, what do you do? It's like, oh, I'm a plumber. It's like, oh, wow, this, and yeah, so stuff like that. So we're building those those types of bridges, which really make life easier for us and everybody around.
2: What would you say has been the hardest challenge? Was it the money? Was it the protesters? And how have you overcome it?
0: Oh, the protesters were nothing. Um, it's always the money. Um, get right down to it. You know, it's because you know we know, you know that there was a bit more, uh, you know, capital we would be, it would just make life a little bit easier, um, you know, just staff wise, et cetera. And, you know, and it's just gets to the point where, you know, we'd like to be able to take this model and and move it outside, um, you know, of, of our community, because we think it's a brand. It's like, it's, it's a hip hop theme coffee shop. You know, we do open mics. We, you know, uh, created, you know, the kind of space so that people can actually share their talents there. And, um, you know, we, we, um, do, events where we host artists of the month events. So local artists get a chance to, to show their work there. So it really is very much a community run space. I mean, it runs on in part by the power of the community itself because they see themselves reflected in it. And we think that type of, of um, ethos that we've been putting in there is something that's super exciting and that we want to see happen around the country. But you know what, we also do real estate development in, in, Around as well around the country because we are working on mixed income and mixed use housing, um, as well as commercial development. Because the the way that we see this community development, it's the coffee shop was just as as far as we were concerned, it was like what we could do at the time with the capital that we had. But ultimately, we believe that it you need to create more economic diversity and community through very intentional mixed income housing. And mixed use commercial development that are responsive to what are the economic trends of the times. So we've got a big project going on in, um, in Mapleton Fall Creek, Indianapolis, and we've got some other, you know, things on the on the burner, hopefully here in New York that you'll be hearing about um, within the next year or so.
2: Okay. So how do you manage the larger work you do with Majora Carter Group while making sure the operations of Boogie Down Grind keeps running smoothly?
0: Thank God I've got staff that helps, um, because I couldn't do it. Like I, you know, I did actually go through the training. So I, with a little more practice, I can absolutely go back to, you know, steaming, um, and creating a perfectly handcrafted <laughs> coffee drink. Right, but right. Fortunately, I've got other folks that, that do that and do that really well, uh, which makes me happy. Um, and then there's, Yeah. So there's that. And uh, for that, I'm really happy uh, because, no, I couldn't be wouldn't be able to do
2: it. Yeah. I'm just looking at you with awe, like, how is she doing this? (laughs) So what is next for Boogie Down Grind Cafe? Are we expanding to other boroughs? Are we expanding the concept to other cities? I know you touched on it briefly, but what is really the vision?
0: Uh, The vision is to take the Boogie Down Grind Cafe and transform it into just the same kind of juggernaut that a uh, hard rock cafe is when they're all over the world and yes with uh with rock and roll right and, jay-z are you listening yeah <laughs> and but what i what i want to do differently is um that for our for the cafe, you know, when we actually did fall short, you know, of being able to, um, you know, pay all of our contractors <laughs> to start when we first opened, um, you know, a local family from the neighborhood contributed, you know, the the last of the funding that we needed, and they got a ten percent ownership stake, okay. you know, in the cafe, which was, you know, felt right to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, but what was fascinating was that, of course, because they couldn't not talk about it. Um, you know ev- the other people in the neighborhood found out about it, and it really kind of inspired me to think about what community investment could mean.
2: Mm-hmm. you know
0: people could literally locally own a piece of the of, of their own community through an economic through economic means and, and and I was just like, I think if we can figure out a way you know and obviously because it all wouldn't be, it would definitely not be my money, it would be other people's money, um, but if they understood the value of having you know, a locally owned space within a community, that that actually helped protect their investment, that that could be a really fabulous thing because people were just like, whoa, we can do that. That's amazing. And I just thought it was really fascinating. I think it had something to do with why, you know, after we were uh, protested, that people felt like they needed to come and support
2: even more. It is such an interesting concept because, Having that stake in it makes you care more. And also, it, it also makes you realize what is possible. Like, hey, we can change this. We don't just have to accept what's going on. Um, but how did you connect with that first investor, like from the Bronx to make up that, that final? Oh, yeah.
0: They were one of the, we had an advisory board. Okay. And we would meet with them every couple of weeks, um, you know, just to, just to let them know like what we were working on. And, um, and, and this was one of the families that was in it.
2: Oh, okay, All right. So now we are going to transition to the lightning round where basically you just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your business and boogie down grind cafe that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Prayer. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but it's like that just popped out. Good. All right. Number two, what's been the best business book that you've consumed this year or in life? Mm hmm. Uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming. Ah, okay. Number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your day? Exercise and quiet time with God. Number four, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your business? Exercise. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss but are worried about not having a steady paycheck? (laughs)
0: If you're worried about not having a steady paycheck, this ain't for you.
2: <laughs> Sorry. It's just that simple. When is the last time you had a steady paycheck? <laughs> when, when did you let go of that need yourself? Ah, oh, my
0: God. Oh, it's been like 11 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, look, I, the, the, the amazing thing is like I get what I want and what I need. Mm-hmm. Like, it's an ama- It's really weird that's the thing. And that people, like, if you, if you just let go, I think that's part of it. Like I, I don't want for anything, believe me, I want more for my business. I do, but I don't want more for me. Like my needs are are taken care of. And I find that that's, that is the case. Like, no, I haven't had a city paycheck at all. but you would, but because you're pouring stuff back into your business, I mean, you make sure that what you need is taken care of. Like my mortgage will be paid. Don't get me wrong. I know my friends are butts about that, right. but, um, you can't just be like, Oh, you know if, what? If, if I don't have that, then I'm just, I, if you, that's where you get all of your validation, then this isn't for you. I, I think most people should not be entrepreneurs to be honest.
2: And that's a whole other podcast, you guys, but looks like, sounds like I have to come to the Bronx, do part two of this, uh, which I will be coming to the Bronx in a few weeks. So we'll work it out after this episode, but where can people connect with you and Boogie Down Grind Cafe after this episode?
0: Wow. Awesome. I'm so happy. I can't wait to see you. So Boogie Down Grind Cafe, you can follow us on Instagram at Boogie Down Grind. And yeah, that's the best way to do it.
2: All right, guys. So thank you so much for joining us in the guest chair, Majora. My pleasure. And now head over to sidehustlepro.co slash Majora for all of the show notes from this episode, including any helpful links and resources mentioned. There you have it, guys. Thanks so much for joining and talk to you next week. Hey, hey, thanks for listening. Now stay connected in between episodes by texting Pro to 44222. You'll get my weekly six bullet Saturday newsletters where I share what I'm up to, what I'm reading, my business tip of the week, and resources to help you grow your side hustle. And I'm working behind the scenes on some live events, which my email list will get access to first. So make sure you're in the loop. Text Side Hustle Pro to 44222 or visit sidehustlepro.co/sbs.